You got volume? Praise the Lord. Okay. Good evening, everyone. How are you doing? I like this crew right here. Right up here on the front row, boy. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Well, thank you for coming out. We're going to pray, and then we're going to get right into the teaching tonight and the rapture of the church. Is this a modern myth, or is it a biblical truth? And what does the scripture say concerning that? So, Father, we just praise you tonight. We thank you for the word, the word of God. It's a lamp unto our feet. It gives direction in times of darkness and confusion. Father, it brings peace to our hearts and to our spirits, even in the midst of turmoil. And, Father, whenever we have question, we can find answers because you said if we would call upon you, there you would be, Lord God. And so we pray tonight, open our ears, give us understanding. Father, we can have knowledge, but knowledge alone is not enough. We can have wisdom, and wisdom alone is not enough. But what we need is understanding, and that's knowledge with wisdom brings understanding to your word. Holy Spirit, open our eyes and our understanding tonight to this blessed hope in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, we're talking about the rapture of the church. Now, I do have some slides up there. I actually had them last week and forgot to even put them out. Uh, so if you're sitting where you can't see them and you want to see them, you might want to move to where you can see them. I can't help you. It, uh, it's over the top of the chart. And... Um, uh, but of all the teachings uh, regarding end times in the Bible, this subject is probably one of the most controversial ones. Um, I, I'm serious. It, it's probably more controversy than any other one because most theologians today dismiss it and say it wasn't even taught by the early church fathers. And I could bore you with pages and pages of quotes by early church fathers who actually talked about it, wrote about it, and, and taught it. But the teaching is known in the church, in the scripture, Titus chapter 2, verse 13, as the blessed hope. And I, I, I just I want you to think about that, the blessed hope. Is it any wonder that the devil... The prince of darkness himself, Satan, would not want the church to have hope. He wants to steal that away from us. The gathering is known as the rapture of the church. Now, people say, where is the word rapture in the Bible? I remember as a young Christian, when I first heard about this, I looked everywhere. I used a Strong's Concordance. I could not find the word rapture anywhere. And it, it's, it's an English translation of a Latin word which means to snatch up snatch away or to catch up. And 1 Thessalonians 4.17 uses the word, we are caught up. So what is the rapture? And I've always, I like simple. And so I have a simple definition. And the simple definition is, it is the supernatural removal of the church, the body of Christ by resurrection or translation from the earth to heaven. In fact, I could actually call this the rapture slash first resurrection if I wanted to, and I'll explain that why in just a, in a moment. But I want you to know the key part there. It is the removal of the church, the body of Christ. And because I'm going to say some things a little bit further down the road that may be different than you've heard before, or maybe you've never heard before, and you, you want to question it. 
But this is what it is. And we're going to look at the scripture and see what it happens, what it talks about. The rapture of the church has two main issues, okay? The first one deals with the rapture itself, the event. Um, the second one deals with the timing of the church, okay? It went of the timing of it. First of all, is the event real? And then when does it happen, okay? And there are f basically four schools of thought concerning the rapture of the church. There are those who believe in what's called a partial rapture position, and I'm going to explain that in just a moment. Then there are those who believe in a post-tribulation, post meaning afterwards. For example, like when you watch a, a ball game and they have the post-game show afterwards, it's the afterwards, the teaching or the, the interviews and everything else. Then you have what's called the mid-tribulation position, and then there is what is known as the pre-tribulation. So the two, two schools of thought divide the four positions. And let me explain that to you. Those who believe in a partial rapture event, they deal with the subjects or those that are involved in this, this event, okay? Those who will make it, okay? That's how they are. The, those who believe in a post, mid, or pre-tribulation, they deal with the time. It has nothing to do with those that are involved, okay? Um, and, and so let me just kind of show you a little bit on the chart here what we're talking about. I mentioned last, last week, talked about the fact that when Christ died on the cross, we talked about the origin of Satan. We talked about his whole plan here. But God had hid it away from uh, Satan, what God's plan was concerning the church. And when Christ rose from the dead and he went back to heaven, he, he established the church on the day of Pentecost. And, and that's where we are right now. Okay, since the day of Pentecost, we are in what is known as the church age or the church period or grace period. Some people term different titles for it. It's the same thing. It's since the pouring out of the spirit of God and the church is here at work. Remember, the rapture is the removal of the church out of the earth. So we're at this point right now. And the rapture of the church is going to take place at any time. It's imminent. And we're going to teach on that in a minute. And this is when we and those who are dead in Christ will rise and go to heaven. Now, let me go back and clarify the three positions that we talked about, the post, mid, and pre-tribulation. The partial rapture teaches this, that only certain ones who are spiritual enough are going to qualify for the partial rapture. Okay, now there's a problem with that, theologically, because under the blood of Christ, you and I are cleansed and we are children of the Most High God. There is no distinction among any one of us. You can be saved for one minute or one day or 10 years or 50 years, doesn't matter. You're a child of God. There, is no, there, there are no special ones in the house, okay? Now, I know you think God loves you best, but, you know, you keep telling yourself and your friends that. But that, the partial rapture believes that only certain ones will qualify. The differences on the other three is that the post 
tribulation believes that the seven year period of time, and we're gonna have a teaching on that probably next week, the seven year period of time when all the, the things that you read about in the book of Revelation that's gonna take place, the judgment of God, the plagues of God, all of those things that are gonna be brought out um, during that period of time. Those who believe in a post-tribulation believe that the, the rapture of the church takes place at the end of that seven year period of time. And their basic philosophy or teaching is that Christ will come back, we will go up in the clouds to meet him, and then we'll do a U-turn and come right back down to the earth where Christ is gonna set up a literal kingdom here on earth. The mid-tribulation are those who believe that halfway through the seven year period of time that they will be raptured out at that point three and a half years into the seven years. The pre-tribulation position is that it will take place sometime before the, rap, before the tribulation period. At some time, it's pre-tribulation, okay? It's gonna happen before. And, and we're gonna learn some things about some misunderstandings people have about that. So partial deals with people, only certain ones good enough to go make it. How many of you glad that's not so? Right. I mean, how do, you, how, do, how do you determine who's spiritual enough to go, right? You know, Jesus said, come to me as a little baby, like a child, or you can't inherit the kingdom of God. So maybe some of us are too smart for our good, you know? So you have those who believe that it will take place before this seven-year period, others that believe it'll take place halfway through, and others that believe that it will take place at the end of that tribulation period, okay? Now, I will tell you that over the years, <laughs> in my early years as, as a, a Christian, from reading scripture and, and very, the few, there was not a lot of, uh, um, what can I say, writings and teachings and things like that that were out in my early years as a teenager. And uh, there were a few movies that came out and a few books that came out that were novels and they kind of based my, uh, formed my theology a little bit. But I could tell you that after all of these years, for decades now, my, my personal position is a pre-tribulation rapture position. Now, let me just say something about that because a lot of people think that the teaching of the pre-tribulation rapture is an escapism mentality. In fact, I've heard, I had someone this week from another state call me and mocking a large televangelist on TV uh, because they were just saying, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening, but we don't have to worry about any of that stuff because before anything really bad happens, Jesus is gonna take us out of the world. I wanna tell you that a pre-tribulation rapture position does not mean you will not suffer difficulties, okay? Jesus said there will be signs in the last days, and he said there'll be wars and famines and pestilence and all those kinds of things, and he says, and this is not it. He said these things must come to pass before we can even begin to get into the end. So I'm just saying, you know, the idea that if you think that the pre-tribulation position is at the first sign of trouble, God's just going to bail us out. Um, that's not a pre-tribulation, a true pre-tribulation position. Okay, at least not in my book. Now, the events of the rapture, there are three passages of the scripture that we're going to look at. And the first one reveals the promise. 
Let's look at this. It, and it's found in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. And here's what the scripture says. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now look at this next verse. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Okay? How many of you believe Jesus tells the truth? All right? He says, in my Father's house are many mansions. And, and if you ever have studied the, the, the Jewish wedding paradigm, then you'll understand that one of the things that's done in a, an Orthodox Jewish wedding after the engagement, um, the, the groom, the bridegroom-to-be goes back to his father's house and he builds onto his father's house or he builds onto his father's property a place for his bride. And the bride is, while he's preparing that, the bride is going through a process that's laid out in the law where she purifies herself. She's purifying herself for when he comes back. He's preparing a place for her. And so Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place. He's teaching them uh, using what they would already be able to relate to. And he says, and if, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now the passage does not deal with the rapture event, but it does give us a promise of it. Because where is Jesus right now? Preparing a place for us in the Father's house, okay? So he's going to come back and take us so that we can be with him where he is. And, and the key to this is, out of all of this, this verse, is that Jesus is going to return for his church, for his followers. And the reason is simple, to take them where he was then going. He was speaking in the future tense. He was saying, I am going to prepare a place. I am going to come in back to get you. And I am going to take you to where I am. Okay, so we have this promise that where I am, you may be also. And since Jesus was going to heaven, he's obviously coming back to, to bring his, his people back to heaven. Now, the post-tribulation rapture um, position, people who hold that, they teach that, that Christ will descend and we will ascend to meet with him in the air, but then turn around and go back to earth, immediately back to earth. But this is not the promise. The promise is he's building a place with his father's house. He's coming to get us, to take us so that we can be where he is. He's coming to take his saints to heaven. So we have that first part there where he's talking about the promise, okay? The second deal, part deals with the program. And it's found in 1 Thessalonians verses four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. And it describes the program of the rapture of the church. Now, this says nothing about the time. It only deals with the chronological events when it begins to take place, okay? And so let's look at what the scripture says. 
But I would not have you ignorant, brothers, concerning those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. What he's talking about are believers who have died in Christ, who believed that Christ was coming, and yet they've gone on and died. And so the church in Thessalonica, they were, the saints were disturbed by this because they felt like that those who had died were going to miss out when Christ comes back again. Okay, so this is what Paul is writing to, he's, he's referring to. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so God will bring with him those who sleep or have died in Christ, Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who are asleep. In other words, when this time comes, those who are dead they are going to go first. And he said, we're not going to precede the dead. They're going to be caught up first and we'll be right behind them. We'll see that more in depth in a minute. He goes on and he says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ. I want you to see that verse again, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. This is important. He said, they will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we be forever with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay. So in verses 13 to 15, the apostle Paul is answering a question that's been raised by the believers in the church. Did our family, did our friends, did our relatives who have died out miss out on the rapture? And so he tells them this. He said, do not grieve over this. He said, for when that moment comes, the dead who have died in Christ will rise first. And then we will be caught up immediately with them. And so Paul comforts the bereaved. He comforts the members of the church with the truth concerning the dead believers that they have not and will not miss out on the rapture of the church. And then in verses 16 through 17, Paul spells out this chronological stage that takes place, okay? Now, you may have never thought about it this way, but Paul's writing something out in step by step by step that when this comes, there, there's a process to the whole thing, okay? It's very quick, but it's a process. So let's break it down real quick and look at it. And the first stage is, it says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. So at some point in time in the future, Jesus is going to come out of heaven and descend into the atmosphere, all right? And it says, and with a shout. The Greek word that is used here is, a, is the word that is used for a command by a military leader. For example, imagine a commanding general coming out of his tent and turning to his high-ranking officers and giving a shout and go, attack or it's time or whatever that command might be he's announcing what that is the commander-in-chief is going to come out of his heavenly tent and give a shout that it's time for the resurrection for the catching up the snatching up of the church and the third step it says and with the voice of the archangel now you know for a long time i didn't quite understand this part i mean if, if god 
if Jesus gives the shout, why, why do you need an angel to repeat it? You know, I mean, really. But when you stop and think about it, in almost every military procedure, there'll be a, a command that will be given by the senior officer, and the executive officer will repeat that command to his subordinates. You know, how many of you know what I'm talking about? I mean, they'll, re for example, if you watch any kind of uh, um, movie that has to do with naval vessels or anything like that, the captain of the ship is going to say, full speed ahead. And the exec turns around and goes, full speed ahead. He just repeats the very same thing, okay? And, and, and all of the officers under him acknowledge that that command has come. So the voice of the archangel is just that. It is the repetition by the sub-commander of the, of the order to the chief commander. In other words, we've received your order and we've passed it along, okay? So he says, he comes out with a shout, with a voice, and with the voice of an archangel. And then it says, with the trumpet of God. And Justin, I'm going to use a video in just a minute, so make sure the, the computer's on, because I want them to understand this part later. It says, the trumpet serves as a summons to get the plan in motion. How many times have you seen something like that? Again, for example, in a, in a, if you've watched any show that had like a naval vessel or something, once the command is given, they may say general quarters. There's a certain sound that's given off. They may, if they're in a submarine, they may say dive. And there's a certain sound that's given off. They may say battle stations or whatever. Uh, there's always a sound that is given. And so in this case, a trumpet is the summons. In other words, the, the command goes out and a sound is come forth that says, get the plan in motion, okay? And, and step five, it says, uh, somebody's playing with the computer. Now, step five, it is this, it, it is the dead in Christ will rise first, okay? This is the first resurrection. And the reason I said we could have called it the rapture slash first resurrection, because the Bible says, blessed are those who have part in the first resurrection. Because there is a second resurrection, and you don't want to be a part of that. And that's way down here at the end, that's also known as the great white throne judgment. Because those who have died in Christ will be raised at this point. There will be people who will die here, but there will be those who have died because of righteousness and believing in, in God. But the, those who are wicked will, will remain in the ground and they will be raised to the great white throne judgment. And the Bible calls that the second resurrection of the second death. And so you can't have a second resurrection until there's a first resurrection, okay? And so the dead in Christ is the first resurrection. And this expression in Christ is important. I've been saying it over and over again. How many of you have been noticing this part? Those in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, okay? Because the expression in Christ limits the resurrection at the time of the rapture to those who are a part of the body of Christ, okay? That began when? On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, when the church was birthed, right? We are in the period of the church, right here. 
The rapture of the church will end this period of time and it will begin this seven year period of time that is known as the tribulation. The first part is known as the tribulation. The last part is known as the great tribulation. Those who will take part in the rapture of the church are the dead in Christ and those who are alive in Christ. They are a part of the body of Christ. The resurrection of the dead saints is limited to the those who have died in Christ. For years, I always just thought everybody dead that was Old Testament, New Testament, whatever, they're going at this time. But many years of study, I've, I've seen differently from looking at Scripture. And there is going to be a time when the Old Testament saints... How many of you remember the story when Jesus... Uh, the story's told where Jesus went, went, said there was a rich man... And there was a poor man, Lazarus, remember? And he said, they were down here where there was a great gulf, right back here, before the, before the cross. And, and there, this place was called paradise. And, and Jesus spoke with, you know, Abraham and, and Moses and, and all of them. And they talked to him on the Mount of Transfiguration about his upcoming death. But those under the Old Testament who had kept the law with a pure heart and did all the things that God said, the, the law would not allow them into heaven until Jesus, we talked about it last week, died, ascended into heaven, and with his blood he sprinkled and, and took the temple that was in heaven and undefiled that temple, okay? So what I'm saying is that the Old Testament saints will be resurrected, but they will be resurrected at a later point in God's prophetic timetable, okay? Then number six says, then we who are alive and remain following the resurrection of the dead in Christ, those who have died and believing in Christ, the living believers will be caught up, raptured with the dead who have been raised to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the source of the term rapture. We are caught up. They are resurrected, but we are snatched up. And then the seventh stage of this is to meet the Lord, we, and so shall we be forever with the Lord. The final step is both the resurrected dead believers and the translated living believers will meet Christ in the air and he will take us to the place that he has prepared for us. And there's a third part of this thing and it's the process. So we, we have the promise that's there, then we have this whole chain of events that takes place and then 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 55. I want you to see something here because this gives us a little more even in-depth understanding. It says, now this I say, brothers, so when he says brothers, who's he writing to? Believers, right? That flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corrupt inherit incorruption. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery. Now, a mystery is that which was unknown in the Old Testament that is now known made known through Christ in the New Testament, okay? And this is what he says, we shall not all sleep. In other words, we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. Say changed. 
Look at your neighbor and go, we all going to be changed. <laughs> we may not all die, but we all will be changed. Verse 52 says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible will put on incorruption, and this mortal will put on immortality. And when this corruptible will have put on incorruption, and this mortal would have put on immortality, then the seeing that is written shall come to pass. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Now this passage is phenomenal because it really gives us insight into the process of change in the nature of our bodies. Now, don't go asking me later. I'm going to tell you right now. I don't know how old you're going to be. I don't know what you're going to look like. I've had people tell me that. Well, I've heard that if you die in the Lord, you'll be 33 because Jesus was 33. That's not in the Bible. And I told you that one of the very first rules of Bible prophecy is that where the Bible is silent, we should remain silent too. Okay? No need to get into speculation or anything like that. All I know is that a glorified body doesn't have any hurts and pains. You know, somebody said, well, am I going to be taller? Am I going to be skinnier? Am I going to? I don't know. But the Bible says we will be known as we are known. Have you ever run into somebody like 20 or 30 years later and going, I, I know you. I know you. There's something there about you, you know? And you may figure it out later, and, 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 but, but there, you will be known as you are known. So don't ask me any of those questions because I'll just look at you and go, I already told you I don't know, okay? But what's important is the need for change. Why is there going to be this change? He's already told us because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We just read it. He says, now this I say, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Let's think about this for a minute. Because of sin, man has become subject to corruption and mortality, right? This kind of body subject to sin, mortality, death, and corruption, cannot enter into an eternal state. So change is necessary. And there's two changes. One is resurrection for those who are dead, and one is translation for those who are alive. Now I'm going to show you there's a difference. But first I want you to see the speed of change. Because the Bible says... In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you can't even measure this moment because the word that is used there is a word that from the Greek that in the modern term, we get the word atom. In, in, a, in an, an atomic moment that is fleeting, I mean, it's so fast. You know, people say it's a blink of an eye. No, it's, it's a quadrillion times faster than that, okay? It's in the atom 
of time that is going to be changed. And this is not a reference to blinking, like blinking in, in, you know, in a blink of an eye, but it is a reference to sudden awareness. Again, I just talked about this. This actually happened several years ago to my wife and I when we were in New York City. We decided on Sunday morning to go to Times Square Church where Carter Conlon had be, was the pastor. He had taken over after David Wilkerson was there. And, uh, and we went to that church. And we weren't sure we were going to get in. It was so packed. And they had an overflow across the street in the city of New York that would have held another 2,500. But we, want, we had a couple of Baptists. I had a Baptist pastor and his wife from right here in Lafayette area that were with us. And I said, I want them to get in this church. <laughs> and they wanted to come. And so we thought we got there early, but man, the whole downstairs was full and they had this huge, uh, um, what you call balcony because it was an old theater, you know, on Times Square. And so we're standing in the hallway and the ushers coming down, get up against the wall, get up against the wall, get up, you know, they kept telling us, get against the wall. I was like, man, I'm all against the wall. And they were looking for seats throughout the area in the balcony. And if they found one or two, they'd come. So my wife got a seat. The, pastor's, the other pastor's wife got a seat. And um, he and I had to stand through the whole service, which I was fine with. I didn't care. And, um, but as we're standing there, you know, standing against the wall like this, waiting to see if there's a seat. And I looked back and I saw this young woman back here. And I said, I know her. And then she looked my way. So I, you know, you know how that is. You do that, Right. Because you don't want to be caught staring, but you're sitting there going, I don't know that person. Well, I don't know nobody in New York. How do I know that person? And so I look back again, and when I look back, she turned away. And I'm looking at her, and then she looked back at me, and I turned away. We did it like three times. And then all of a sudden, both of us in unison turned. I know you. What are you doing here? And she'd come up when I was the pastor at the church in Eunice and she had gotten married to an international banker and they lived right, right just a few blocks away from on, near, uh, Central Park in New York City and she goes, this is my church. And she said, normally I'd be across the street or downstairs but I got here late. And, and, but we, in the moment, in unison, we're like, what are you doing here? I know you. And then we ran to each other and hugged and said hello. And of course, then the usher said, get up against the wall. You know, so we did that. But it was that quickening, that awareness that all of a sudden, in that moment, we recognized each other. And that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about a twinkling of an eye. There'll be a sudden awareness, a flash of recognition, okay? And then in verse 52, it says this. It says that at the last trump, or the last trumpet. Now, here's the problem that a lot of people who believe the mid-tribulation, and let me explain this to you. In the tribulation, we know that there are seals that are opened up, seven seals. We know that there are seven trumpets, and we know that there are seven vials or bowls that are opened up. And so if you look at it, you'll see that the seventh trumpet is sounded right near the three and a half year period, the middle of this tribulation period. 
And many people who take the mid-tribulation position will quote this verse of Scripture saying that Paul said at the sound of the last trumpet, okay? This is not what Paul is referring to. It is not the seventh trumpet that is found in Revelation 11. It is the last trumpet that is related to the Feast of Trumpets. Now, how can we be sure? How can we be sure about that? Because I'm not going to speculate. I want to know. I want to know what the Bible says. I want to know what the Scripture's talking about, what Paul's talking about. Well, first of all, when Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, okay, John had not been exiled to the Isle of Patmos. John had not written the book of Revelation. He had not had any of those revelations. This was year, many years before that time. So John, Paul could not have been referring to something that John had not received. But somebody will say, oh, but he, God knew that he was going to get it, and so Paul was speaking another mystery. Problem with that is, Paul was writing to the church in Corinth. And they would have had no clue what he was talking about. But they would have had understanding concerning the seventh trumpet. What am I talking about? They would have understood the term, the last trump. That's what it says, the last trump. They would have had understanding. Why? Because of the Feast of Trumpets. Now, on the Feast of Trumpets, we don't have time to go through that whole process and everything, but the Feast of Trumpets was one of those holy days in the Jewish calendar. And it, it is a part of the Jewish practice that God gave to them of blowing trumpets on that feast day. And during the ceremony, there are a series of three different trumpet sounds, okay? And they are blown a total of 33 times. So there's three different trumpet sounds. They are blown 11 times, so 33 times. Now I want you to see and hear what those three different trumpet sounds are, okay? That's one sound. That's the second sound. Now, on the Feast of Trumpets, each one of those trumpet sounds would have been sounded 11 times, times 3, or 3 times, times 11, but a total of 33, 99 times, okay? But they are commanded to blow the trumpet 100 times. And after those three distinct sounds, there is known on the Feast of Trumpets what is called the last trump. And this is what it sounds like. That's the last trump. Totally different from the rest. 
And the believers would have known because they would have been taught and understood the, the picture of the Feast of Trumpets in Christ and how he fulfilled those things. And he was saying, at the last trump, that's the trumpet sound we're listening for. It's, it's not a trumpet sound that, you know, somebody wrote, somebody made up, but it is that kind of sound. And that's what Paul is referring to. He said, at the last trump of God. Okay? So, at the sound of the trumpet, the dead are raised incorruptible, and we who are living are changed. Let's go back to verse 53. For this corruptible will put on incorruption, and this mortal will put on immortality. Now, I don't know about you, but I used to read that thinking it just saying the same thing two different ways. But it's not. It's two different groups. Okay? Because corruptible refers to dead believers. Those who have died. What happens to the body when a person dies? It decays. <clears throat> Corruption brings about decay. So the corruptible would put on incorruption. But then it says what? The mortal will put on immortality. What is the mortal? Those who are alive. A dead man's not worried about dying. Our mortality is very real to us because we are alive, right? But if I'm dead, I'm not worried about dying. So he was saying that when that time comes, the incorruptible, the dead in Christ will rise first and, and will, the, the corruptible will put on incorruption and then we who are alive and remain who are mortal, we will put on immortality through translation. In other words, in that twinkling of an eye, that blink out of an eye, that atomic moment of an eye will be changed. We'll go from this body to a glorified body. Can you say praise God for that? And that change is the final victory over death. That's what we read about. So the second question concerning the rapture of the church is when will it take place? And here's what I will tell you from a pre-tribulation position is that the rapture of the church will take place before the tribulation. Now, this sounds kind of crazy, I know, but you've got to understand something. When will it take place? Before the tribulation period. Again, now what is the tribulation? <clears throat> if we had time to do the study of Daniel's 70th week, we'd talk about the fact that God said there would be 70 weeks declared upon your people, Daniel, Daniel being a Jew. And from the time that the word went forth to rebuild the temple to the time that Christ was killed, as the Bible says, cut off, that was 483 years. But God had said there would be 490 years conferred upon the Jewish people. And so there's a seven-year period of time that's still left to be fulfilled on Daniel's vision or that God gave him concerning the Jewish people. It's a seven-year period of time. And the tribulation is a seven-year period of time of extreme testing or judgment to come upon the earth 
that has never been seen in the history of the human race. It will comprise of natural upheavals. It will be comprised of geopolitical events. It will consist of pandemic plague and disease. It will consist of supernatural judgments. The Bible says that the sun will be darkened. Five times it will be darkened. Water supplies will turn to blood. There'll be supernatural judgments that will come. So in regard to the rapture of the church, it will happen before the tribulation. And I'm going to give you five reasons why I believe the Bible tells us this and give us, gives us this insight, okay? First of all, there is no biblical passage that discusses the tribulation where the church is ever mentioned. The church at the day of Pentecost with the baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit was born. Therefore, Old Testament saints are not a part of the church. I know there will be some day, but Christ, the Bible says, he went down into the lower parts of the earth and he preached unto them. And Ephesians says he took those that were in captivity and brought them to heaven, right? Yes, but that was not a resurrection. That was the souls of the Old Testament saints who had been locked out of heaven. Remember, they were in paradise and there was a gap between there and down in Sheol where the torment was. That place of paradise is empty today. When Jesus turned to the thief on the cross and he, had, he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What did Jesus tell him? Today you will be with me in paradise. Why didn't he say heaven? Because his first trip was to paradise where the Old Testament saints had been barred from going into heaven and he was going to preach unto them what he has done and that he was setting them free and then he would lead them, the Bible says, into the presence of God. He brought their souls into heaven but they have not been resurrected yet and that's why I, I point this out over and over again that the, the existence of those in the tribulation who are called saints does not prove that the church is there. And this is where many people get confused. They say, well, there's saints in the, in the tribulation period. But you need to understand, church saints and tribulation saints are not the same. All right? The church is never mentioned in any passage dealing with the tribulation period, and that is especially evident and significant in the book of Revelation itself. The church is clearly there in chapters 1, 2, and 3, but, and then the tribulation takes place, and you don't see a mention of the church again until chapter 19 through 22. But it's in chapters 6 through 18 when all this tribulation, all this plagues, all this judgment's taking place and the church is not mentioned one time. But let's look at another reason. The earliest indication of a pre-tribulation rapture is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, verse 34 through 37. Look what it says. But take heed to yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, that that day come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Who's it going to come upon? All those who dwell upon the face of the whole earth. So everybody... He's talking about this day, this, this day of this period of time of judgment. He said it's going to come upon 
everyone who dwells on the whole earth, okay? But let's go on, verse 36. Watch, therefore, and pray that you may prevail to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So after describing these terrible events of the tribulation, Jesus states that it will come upon every single person who dwells on the face of the earth. In other words, there's no earth dwellers that are going to escape the judgments of the tribulation period. The wording of the passage, all means all, right? Come on now. All means all, or does it mean just some all? No, it's all, all right? If one is on the earth, they cannot escape the cataclysms that are going to come during the tribulation period. And yet verse 36 says there is a way of escaping all these things that shall come to pass, but the way of escaping is not remaining on the earth. All right? In order to prevail, to escape these things, one must be a believer. Because what did the verse say? There was a key there. But though pray that you, you may escape these things by, and stand before the Son of Man. Now, I'm going to give you just a little picture real quick. When the rapture of the church takes place and we're caught up before God, there is going to come, and we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, the judgment seat of Christ. Every believer in Christ will stand before God and give an account for their life after coming to know the Lord, all right? Without Christ, we would not be resurrected until all the way here, and we would stand before God, and without the blood of Jesus Christ applied to our lives, our sins would condemn us to eternal fire. But we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the Bible says that we will give an account of every thought, word, and deed that we have done and will do from the time that we, we accept Christ into our lives. And, and out of that will bring, I'll show you, that is where our wedding garment comes from. But it also determines when Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom and he's going to come back. When he comes back, he's going to set up a thousand year period of time where he's going to literally rule on earth and we reign with Christ. It says we will reign and rule with Jesus Christ. So the, the judgment seat is not just to receive a garment. Of, for the wedding, but it is to determine our faithfulness. He who has been faithful with little will rule over much. Because when we come back, hey, that thousand year period of time, we ain't sitting in the clouds singing Kumbaya, you know, or praise you, Jesus, praise you, Jesus. We're not doing that. We're ruling and reigning. There is a government that will be established on the earth during that thousand year period of time. And how faithful we have been with what God has given us. Not how big a ministry you've had or how, how your name has been in limelight or whatever. How faithful you have been with what he's entrusted you with will determine how faithful uh, your position, what your position will be in his future government. And he says the only way of escaping is to be able to stand before the son of man. So if we go back to the chart again. If we're caught up here and the judgment begins at some point down here, where will we stand before the Son of Man? At the judgment seat of Christ. While the tribulation is going on, 
we can escape by standing before the Son of Man. The third thing is Paul's teaching in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9 and 10. It says, for they themselves declare how we were received by you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now those closing words I've put in yellow and underlined, that's important that you understand the word wrath. The word wrath is often used of God's general wrath against sin. In other words, God's going to have punishment against sin because sin is the opposite of who God is. It is, it is wicked in God's eyes. But it is also used in the word wrath concerning the great tribulation. I could give you dozens of references for Revelation 6, 17, Revelation 14, 10, and 19, Revelation 15 and 1 and 7, Revelation 16 and 1, and there's more. The wrath of God, and this is where a lot of people do not understand. They say, we must go through tribulation that we would be purified of our sins. False. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Anyone who believes that we must go through tribulation to be made pure, to go into his presence, that is a Protestant form of purgatory. It is. The wrath of God. People say, well, there's tribulation here on earth. Jesus said, yes, there's tribulation on earth. Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. But we just read the scripture that says, and we are waiting for his son Jesus from heaven, who he raised from the dead, who delivers us from the wrath to come. People say, well, that's the wrath due to the final judgment over here of sin. No. Because the Bible says in the moment that I am born again by the Spirit of God, when you believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says I have already passed from judgment into life. I'm already past that judgment. The judgment of sin is no longer on my life. Come on now. Do you get a hold of it? I've passed from judgment into life. So the wrath cannot be general wrath upon sin. I've already made that crossover. So what is he talking about? He's talking about the wrath to come, the wrath of God that is going to be poured out on the earth. It cannot refer to general wrath about sin. And while hell and the lake of fire are also future, this is not what it can be referring to. We've already been redeemed from hell. We've been redeemed from the lake of fire. We've been redeemed from sin. We've been moved out of darkness into the kingdom of his eternal son. There is no wrath in him. He is love, his mercy, his grace. By virtue of salvation, Jesus is not returning for the purpose of delivering the church from hell or lake fire. It's already been done at the cross. I do not lay my head down at night wondering if I'm going to wake up in hell. I realize there are times I fall asleep at night and realize I have fallen short. 
in my own flesh. But I know in whom I have believed. I know who he is. And I am committed to him. And he's committed even more to me. Amen. He's coming for a specific purpose, and that is to deliver his church. With the believer's guaranteed deliverance from God's wrath against sin and tribulation wrath. Then there's the fourth teaching of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 10. And, and I'm going to kind of shorten this a little bit, but here's what you need to see. In verse 1, it says this. It begins with but concerning the times. Brothers, he says, I have no need that I write to you. You need to understand something about that one little word right there, but. Okay, that's underlined. The word is, in the Greek, is, is what is known as a parody. Parody, it's P-E-R space D-I, it's two words, okay, parody. It is the same way we would say, now concerning this, in other words, he's shifting gears, he's changing subjects. He's been talking about one subject, but then he says, but concerning the times, I do not need to write to you concerning them. In other words, he's introducing a change in the subject. You ever talk to somebody who changes the subject mid-sentence and you don't know they changed it? And then you go back, huh? And then I've moved on. Well, man, you stripped gears. I didn't hear it. I, boom, you know. I mean, let me warn me if you're going to throw it in reverse, go a different direction, you know, right? Well, Paul, this is what Paul is saying. He's saying here, he said, but concerning the times, and we're going to go back a second, and you're going to see, he's been talking in chapter four, he's been talking about the wrath of God and that we have been delivered from the wrath. And he says, but on another subject or in another vein, go in a different direction concerning the times, brother, there's no need that I write to you. So see, he's shifting gears from wrath. And then he comes over to chapter five. He says in chapter verse two, it says, it says this, for you know perfectly that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor upon a woman with a child, and they shall not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. And then go down to verse 9. For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, dead, we should live together with him. So see, he's talking about the wrath of God. He says, but concerning the times, I don't need to tell you. He says that that is not for us. We have been appointed under something else. And this is what he's telling the church, that they've not been appointed to the wrath of God. And the precursor that is found uh, to the word wrath is found in verse two, the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord so often is misunderstood as the rapture of the church. But the day of the Lord throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is a reference to the tribulation period, to the judgment of God. 
Now that may be new for some of you, but I, I challenge you to study it out and look and see. It says, in other words, concerning the wrath of God or the day of the Lord or the tribulation, to that day the church was not appointed. Okay? So here's the, the sequence of all this. The discussion is about the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 18. He's talking about us being captured away, caught away. And then he goes over to chapter 5, and he begins to talk about this. He says, and that we're going to be caught up to be with the Lord. Again, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians 4, the last part of verse 16. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's a command. Now, if we were appointed under wrath, where's the comfort? If we're going to be appointed under the judgment of God, where's the comfort in that? The comfort is what? That Jesus Christ paid the penalty for my sin. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin. And whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We have this hope in earthen vessels. This is what the gospel message is all about. And we are out there to tell the world that you can have hope in troubled times because Jesus Christ becomes your savior. And if you make him Lord, he's coming back to take you with him when the going gets really tough. I'm talking about when the wrath of God begins to be poured out. See, Jesus on the cross suffered the wrath of our sins, the penalty for our sins. The Bible says we read it this morning, it pleased God to, to crush him with the weight of our sins. And not that it pleased God like he was laughing, but it pleased God knowing that none of us could have paid that price and that his son was able to do so. He says, comfort one another with these words. The comfort in verse 18 involves the fact that the church believers will not go through the period known as the day of the Lord. And then verse one of chapter five again, but concerning those times, brothers, you have no need that I write you. Again, there's that contrasting word for as over against this, you're comforted here, comfort one another, but understand that while you're comforted that you'll be delivered from this. Understand what's coming against those who do not know Jesus. Says we've been appointed to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And that word salvation is future tense, referring to the redemption of the body. When we will be translated or resurrected, whichever it may be. And then the last teaching concerning this is Jesus' admonition to the church in Revelation chapter 3. In verse 10, look what it says. Because you did keep the word of my patience, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, that hour which is to come upon the whole world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Didn't we just read a verse that said there's coming judgment upon every single person who is an earth dweller, right? Right? A different passage, 
But look what Jesus is saying to the church here. He said, I will keep you from the hour of trial, that hour which is to come upon the whole world to try them, to test them who live and dwell upon the earth. The church is promised to be kept from that period of time which is about to fall upon the face of the earth. And in the context of the book of Revelation, that is the tribulation period, that seven-year period of time from chapter 6 of Revelation to up to chapter 19 of Revelation. It falls upon the whole earth. There is no safety place. There is no safe zone during that period of time. And so it requires the removal of God's people during that time. Now, if Revelation 3 and 10 only means that God would keep them safe during the, tri during the tribulation, then something is definitely going wrong. Because I've had people tell me, well, God's going to be just like when he brought judgment upon Egypt. Uh, God's plagues never touched the children of Israel. But the Bible says that no one shall escape the judgment that is going to come on the face of the earth. And not only that, I can give you dozens of scriptures throughout the book of Revelation that says that there will be saints who have come to know Christ, who have come to believe in Christ during the tribulation period. And the Bible says the majority of them that come to know Christ will be slaughtered or beheaded or given their life. They'll be martyrs for the cause of Christ. We even have a picture in the, old, in, in the book of Revelation where it says the saints that are under the altar and they're asking God, they're talking about how, he says, how long, O Lord, before you avenge our blood on those who have killed us? How long will it be? And Jesus tells them, he says, it will be a little bit longer, a, a little bit while. How many of you have heard that if you don't get to know, if you don't come to Christ before the, before the rapture, the Holy Spirit will be taken out of the earth and you'll have no chance to come to Christ? How many have heard something like that? Not so. There will be millions who will come to know the salvation message of Christ during the tribulation period. We see the 144,000 who are anointed with God's anointing upon their head. And the Bible says, and from that, there are thousands upon thousands times 10,000 before the throne and they are anointed to preach the gospel to the four corners of the earth. And if that is the case, the Holy Spirit being taken out, then no one can be saved during the tribulation period because Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except the Spirit draw him. And if the spirit is going to be taken out of the earth when the church is taken out, then no one can come to Christ. Come on, folks. We really, we really need to understand what God's word says. These passages of scripture all state that the church is going to be removed from the wrath of the day of the Lord. So I told you there was about the event itself, but then there's the timing. And this will be quick, and then we'll be done. Before, when will the tribulation take place? And I've, I've said it before, but the rapture of the church is imminent. Imminent, okay? What does that mean? Imminent does not mean soon. Let me go back to that slide. Because we think imminent, like now. It could happen now. It could happen in the next moment. 
There is imminent means there is nothing that must be fulfilled for that to take place. But I could tell you this, there are things that must be fulfilled before the tribulation can take place. There are things that must be fulfilled before Jesus Christ can come back to earth for the second time. There are things that must take place. People ask me all the time, what do you who do you think the Antichrist is? I say, I have no idea. <laughs> do you think he's alive today? I have no idea. Could be, might not be. I'm not told to look for the Antichrist. I'm told to look for the Christ. <laughs> I'm, I'm waiting to hear the, his word. I'm waiting to hear that trumpet sound. I ain't looking for the Antichrist. I mean, I got a whole teaching on the Antichrist, but I'm not looking for him. If you want it and you're going to stay around and wait, I'll give it to you. <laughs> Imminent does not, it just means, it, 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 does, it means it could happen at any moment. There's no, there's no hurdles in the way, no obstacles to stop it from happening. There's several scriptures that refer to this key point, but time restricts me from really going into depth about it. But let me just give you one here. Romans 13, 11 says, furthermore, knowing the time, now is the moment to awake from sleep. Now he's not talking about being dead. <laughs> he's talking about those who are slumbering, who are asleep, who are not awake, they're not woke in the church. They're not spiritually woke. They need to be awakened in their spirit as to what the time is. For now, our salvation, say our salvation. Who is our salvation? Jesus Christ. Because I'm already saved. Are you saved? Do you know Christ? Have you received salvation? Well, then you have salvation, but he's writing and he says, for now our salvation is nearer than when we believed. The redemption of the body is looked upon as being very near. The fullness of our salvation is a future event. My soul is saved, but the completion of my redemption is when my soul, which is immortal and has been transformed by the power of God into his, the, his kingdom, joins with my body, whether it's been dead and resurrected or alive and translated and joined together, the soul and body and spirit come together and I stand before his presence and we stand before him. In that moment, we will say, hallelujah, our God reigns because salvation will be complete. Because you cannot tell the message of the gospel without the message of the resurrection. And the Bible says, if Christ has been raised from the dead, then we who have believed, we too shall be raised. <laughs> Come on, church. You may get more excited than that, man. <sighs> Whew. Each day brings us one day closer to when the rapture may take place. James chapter five, verse seven through nine says, therefore be patient brothers until the coming of the Lord. I hate that word patient. <laughs> How many, you say, well, I just love to be patient. <laughs> yeah, you don't want me to pray. <laughs> really, he says, therefore brothers, 
Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Verse 8 says, for the coming of the Lord is drawing near. And verse 9 says, look, the judge is standing at the door. That's the mindset we should have. But the problem is for the church is that we say, glory to God, I'm saved and I'm going to be translated when Jesus comes. But we forget that those who are left behind, what they are going to face. You think the world is ugly now. Take a praying church out. Take the saints of God out. Take the voices of righteousness out. Bring evil upon the land and just let the floodgates of hell break open. There'll be no one praying to, fit, to, to hold that back. There'll be no one in the halls of Congress speaking up for righteousness sake. My mentor and pastor said within 24 hours after the rapture of the church, every church in every city will be filled. He said, and God help the preachers who are still there because the people will demand and want to know why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you warn us of what was going to come? Now, I said earlier that the word imminent doesn't mean soon. It just means there's, it could come at any moment. It, it doesn't mean it's going to happen in the next five seconds or tomorrow or whatever. It could, but it doesn't mean that, okay? But here's what you need to understand is that imminent return can only happen before the tribulation period. Why? This tribulation period is how long? Anybody remember? Seven years. How do we know that? Daniel's 70th week. He was, says 70 weeks have been conferred upon your people. 70 weeks he learned. Was, each week was seven years, was a week, okay? And so from the time that the word went forth to rebuild the temple to the time that Christ was killed upon the cross was 483 historical years. That leaves seven years for the 490 years to take place, okay? So this is seven years. In fact, the book of Revelation tells us, that according to the Jewish calendar, exactly how many days it is. Half of it's 1,260 days. He, he tells us exactly how long it is, okay? So here's the thing. If the rapture of the church is imminent, could take place at any moment. If I don't believe that it's going to happen until Christ comes back, then I know exactly when it's going to take place. At the end of the seven years. In the mid-tribulation, I know exactly when it's going to take place. Three and a half years from the beginning of this tribulation period. But if I believe that it can happen at any moment, I have no idea when this, this is going to take place, when the rapture is going to take place. Now I want to show you one other thing, and then this is important, because so much bad theology is out there in novels and books and movies and things like that concerning the end times, okay? Unfortunately, most Christians draw their theology from the novels when they should be driving, drawing their theology from this book right here, okay? The rapture precedes the tribulation, but the rapture does not begin the tribulation. All the left behind books and movies and everything, how many of you 
have been taught that when the rapture takes place, the tribulation begins. I remember when that first movie came out. What was that first movie years ago, Brother Bobby? About the rapture. And, I mean, within 42 hours, 46 hours, 72 hours, the Antichrist was on the scene ruling the world. What was it? Thief in the night, yes. Bad theology. <laughs> I mean, it scared the fire out of you. I mean, if you, were, if you thought you were saved and you weren't sure, you'd get saved again, I'm telling you. It, it was bad. I mean, it was, woo! We, we used to show that movie every place we'd go, and kids would run to the altar, man. <laughs> I mean, and you'd see parents going, get them saved, get them saved. I'd say, get down here with your kids, you know? But I'm, I'm serious. The theology, here's the thing. They think that because the church has taken out, that suddenly the world is thrown into chaos and a world leader comes on the scene. But that's not so. Because when we get to the tribulation, you'll find that it takes the Antichrist, who is a political ruler, three and a half years to conquer X number of countries to form his kingdom. He goes forth to make war. He doesn't instantly everybody fall down overnight. And here's the thing. The, the rapture does not start or begin the tribulation. There is only one thing and it's very specific in the Bible. And it's found in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 27. And it says that when the leaders of Israel sign an agreement of some type, and it does not say peace treaty, though I do believe it is some kind of security agreement, because the one thing that Israel wants, in fact, a few years ago, one of the leading members of the Knesset, which is like their Congress, said that if a man came on the scene and could assure us complete, absolute security, we would sign any agreement they would put forth. But it says that when they sign this agreement, and they're not signing an agreement with the Antichrist, it is a political person who is able to secure them peace and from being attacked by their surrounding neighbors. Okay? So here's what you need to understand. Once they sign that, go back and read it. It, it talks about a seven-year period of time on the Jewish calendar that begins to click at that moment. And that means that the rapture that could be at any moment, could take place now, a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, and the tribulation period will not have started. It might be that when we're taken out, everything is put in place for the tribulation to start. But what I want you to understand is the rapture does not start the countdown for the tribulation period. You understand that? It is the signing of an agreement by the leaders of Israel. And the fact, the Bible says there will be some in Israel who disagree with the signing. But the majority of their leaders who led them in revolt against the first coming of the Messiah will lead them in a direction that will ultimately bring them into an alliance with a false Messiah, the Antichrist. So the church may see many more pre-tribulation 
events. But God has promised to shake everything that can be shaken. And the biblical truth of the rapture of the church can take place at any time. There could be no warning concerning that. Jesus told us that in Matthew 24, verses 40 through 42. says, two will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two will be at the grinding mill, one will be taken, and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord will come. When it does happen, there will be a separation between the believers and unbelievers. Or as I like to say sometimes, the believers and the make-believers. It says here, two will be in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. One will be at the grinding in the mill. Two will be in the mill, one will be taken, and one will be left. This is the time to search our hearts. This is the time to search our hearts and be honest with us and ourselves and with God. Are we ready? Are you ready? If the trumpet should sound, are you ready to meet God? Are you ready to go with God? Or will you be left behind? And that is the question before us tonight. When that trumpet sounds, will you be resurrected if you're dead? Will you be caught up if you're alive? Or will you remain? Can you imagine when the rapture takes place and those who have heard this message, and I'm telling you, this is why it's my heart's desire to teach and to preach on this. There's the majority of people in churches in our city and surrounding area have never heard a message about the coming of Christ. They've never heard about the judgment of God. They've never heard about any of these things. And how many of them are make-believers sitting in the pews and the chairs of their churches every Sunday? And they're playing games. Imagine what it's going to be like the day following the rapture. Because I guarantee you they'll be beating on the doors of the church looking for answers. And they'll sit there and say, I never was told, I never heard. Well, my friends, in this day and age, there's no need not to know. There's enough out there if you're interested and you're knowing. But I'm telling you, we need to know our hearts are ready for when that trumpet sounds. If your prayer at night is, dear God, give me one more day to get my life right. No, you better pray right then and there and get right. Because you're not promised tomorrow. I want you to bow your heads for just a moment. We're going to pray. And I'm going to ask you, those of you that are here, I'm going to ask you. And you, you say, Pastor Bob, I'd... If Jesus came back today, I know I wouldn't go because I've never surrendered my life to him. But I don't want to walk out tonight without knowing that Christ saved me and that I'm changed in a moment from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son. If there's one here tonight maybe two and you would be honest and say 
Pastor Bob, pray with me. I want to know Jesus. I want him to close my eyes tonight and have my heart be at rest and be at peace that I know I'm a child of the living God. I want you just to raise your hand. I want to pray with you. Thank you. Who else? Anybody else? You can put your hand down. Thank you. Who else? Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Man, I'm telling you, thank you. I'm not trying to, I mentioned it last week, I'm not trying to scare people into the kingdom because fear wears off really quick. I want to motivate people by the love of Jesus Christ and what his word says. He would rather die for you as you can live for him. Right where you're at right now, I want you to pray with me. Those of you who raised your hand, I want you to pray with me right now and mean it from your heart. Not one of those little dipsy prayers where you're just going to say it, but you really don't mean it. Dear God in heaven, I confess to you, I am a sinner. I am lost and need your mercy and I need your grace upon my life. Dear Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. You were born of a virgin. You lived a sinless life. You died on the cross. You were buried in the tomb and raised to life on the third day. Come into my life. I surrender control to you this night. Now, Holy Spirit, teach me the truth, all truth concerning Jesus. I pray this in his holy name. Amen. And that means those five people who raised their hands, if they prayed that and they mean it with their hearts, there's a party going on in heaven. You know, the Bible says that the angels rejoice in the presence of God when a sinner comes home. But did you know that the Bible also says that in the presence of the angels, there is rejoicing. And I remember for a long time, I thought about that. And I'm like, well, who's in the presence of angels? The angels surrounding the throne. Who's in the presence? Father God. Father and Son are saying yes. Yes, another one has come home. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Well, we're done with the teaching part. And so we'll take a few moments for any questions or comments or whatever. We did last week. We did this. And uh, I'm going to say, if, I don't know if there's any children in the back, but if you need to go get them, you can do that and come back with them. But what's your question? Those are souls. There are souls in heaven. Yes, there are souls in heaven. The body says that we're made up of three parts, spirit, soul, and body. 
When we die, the spirit and the soul go before God. It says in the moment that we die, when we come into God's presence, okay? But our body is still in the ground. And so the resurrection is the joining of the decayed body is resurrected and then joined with the spirit and the soul of those who are in heaven. And now they have a glorified body. And we who are alive are given a glorified body, just as Christ had a glorified body. And we, our soul and spirit are already in us, but we're translated instantly. So there's no joining because we're already joined because we're alive. So when he talks about those that are in heaven, he's speaking of those saints that are already there, the souls of those who have already gone to be in the presence of God. Good question, though. Good question. I'm sorry, his question was, doesn't John say in Revelation that there are people already in heaven? And the question, I, and my point was that he speaks of the souls of those who are already in heaven, but the resurrection in translation is, well, the resurrection is the joining of the body with the soul and spirit that is already in the presence of God. I'm sorry, I, I thought... I just think it's so cool, um, and I, I thought everyone should know the way the Lord is working in this church because this is the exact message that our kids from the youngest to the oldest heard today, and the scriptures that you used tonight, some of them turned around and looked at me, were the scriptures that we taught on, so I think it's amazing that God is, uh, he's definitely speaking to this church, so that's cool. That's awesome. That's awesome. I mean, how many children's churches do you know where they teach on that? Can I tell you that children's church in many churches is a glorified babysitting service? <laughs> that ain't happening in life church. We're raising up generational leaders, man. I mean, to the coming of the Lord. Amen? Question. As soon as you die, the deep... Are the books open and you, right when you die you give your account or is it later in the... No. The rapture includes the first resurrection, right? The dead in Christ rise first. Their body is brought out of the grave and joined with the spirit and soul. And we who are alive are translated instantly into a glorified body and we follow them into heaven. And then at some point is the judgment seat of Christ in that seven-year period of time. So it, it is not, we can't say that it's instant. The books are not open. The, the, only, the, the, play, the only place that really mentions books is over here. For it says in all the books, including the book of life, and Lamb's book of life. But it tells us here that there are the records of everything we have done. And it says, everything that we have done that has been eternal of value. And it calls them gold, silver, and precious stones. He says, but those things that are temporal value, he says, are wood, hay, and stubble. And they are burned up by the fire. But he says, but not fire unto judgment like hellfire, but fire that shows that those works were worthless. Okay? So... There is a judgment that takes place, and we will give an account. And I don't know how God is going to do that. I, I don't think he's going to make us all wait in line. You know, 
I, I think that somehow that, you know, I, you know, again, it's speculation, but there have been people who have said they've seen their whole life flash before their eyes in a moment. And, and God can easily just put before us our whole life. And we, we could see it in a, in a short span of time. And then he has an account of those things. Holy Spirit writes those things down. Every day you wake up, you think about it, every day that you wake up, you have like a clean piece of paper for your book. And you determine what's going to go on there. And then it goes into the folder of God. And when we stand before him, we'll give an account for the actions and the words and the attitudes and the prejudices and the good things and the bad things and the, everything in between. And, and we'll give an account for that. So I don't know how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, how soon, but I do know this, and that is this, that after the judgment seat, we will see later, that this is where we receive our wedding garment. Because one of the things that will take place in heaven is the wedding, the wedding that takes place, the marriage of the church the bride of Christ to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about it at another teaching, but this chart was done by my mentor. It says the marriage supper of the lamb. If I did this chart, it would say the marriage of the lamb because the scripture shows us that the wedding feast takes place here on earth when we come back with Christ. The feast is different from the wedding. And I have a whole teaching on that when you understand the, the Jewish wedding paradigm that in the wedding, the only one who is invited is family and a few close friends in the Jewish wedding. And then get this, for seven days after the wedding, the bride and groom go into the chuppah, the room that was prepared for the bride. Remember, the, the bridegroom-to-be goes, goes back and prepares a room Jesus is preparing a place in his father's house for us. And, and when that time comes, he will come back to get us, to bring us back. And in a Jewish wedding, once the wedding takes place, the bride and the groom go into that room, that place that has been built to consummate the marriage, and they stay there for seven days, one week. And then when they're brought out, when they come out, they are presented to the world for the first time to all the people as the, the bride and the groom. That's the way it's done in the Jewish wedding, okay? So I want you to think about that. Seven days, one week. How long is this period of time right here? Seven years. What was it called in Daniel? His 70th what? Week? One week? Seven years? Judgment seat, we get our garments, marriage takes place, the wedding takes place, and then we come back to earth and God establishes the wedding feast. And that's a whole teaching separate by itself. I just give you a little lanyap there. Yes, sir. It's interesting to me because we think in time 
God doesn't have time. That could be, as we look at it, we see a thousand years. God says, that just went by. He has no time in heaven. So what takes place up there can be that quick, all those at one time. And our mind works going, oh, wow, seven years. No. Right, I see what you're time saying. Time is no factor in heaven. Yeah. I've had people always ask me, will we know what's going on down here on earth while we're there? Again, we have no clue because we're not told that. You know, we're not told that, so I'm not going to speculate that. And I understand what you're saying, brother. That seven years could fly in heaven. I mean, just like a moment, and, and it could take place, or it could be seven years. You know, I don't, I don't know how that works, but I do know that in the Jewish, the Jewish wedding system, the bride and the groom are married, and then for seven days they stay hidden from everybody else, and it's only when they come out at the end of the week that they are presented as husband and wife to the rest of the world. And I believe that is the second coming of Jesus Christ, for he comes forth, and the Bible says, and we come behind him. We are with him at his coming back to earth again. In fact, there's a period of time, 75 days, there's a whole teaching on that that I do. 75 days between when Christ comes back and when this thousand-year kingdom begins. Jesus Christ comes back, and then this thousand years begins. There's a 75-day window, and there are certain things that will take place, and I believe that that 75 days is kicked off with the wedding feast. That's just my personal belief. Uh, so if Hades was the holding place for hell... Do what now? Or the Hades was the holding place for hell, and the Old Testament saints were in paradise, then what's Sheol? Like, what was that for? Sheol in the Old Testament is referred to as what we see in the New Testament is referred to as Hades. It is hell. Okay? So there was... This place here, the paradise where the Old Testament saints were, and a great gulf that was fixed between them. And at this point, when Christ rose from the dead, he removed paradise and brought it to heaven. And so the Bible says to be absent with the, in the body is to be present in the Lord. We do not go to paradise. We go directly into his presence. Our soul goes directly, our spirit goes directly into God's presence. But if you read the scripture in the New Testament, it says one thing. In the Old Testament, the psalmist especially referred to Sheol as a Hebrew phrase meaning hell. And then you may come across another term, Gehenna, and it's, it's similar. But I can tell you, there's also a teaching that I can show you where there are degrees. Even as we are being judged for our positions of rulership in God's kingdom, and there will be degrees of leadership and rulership, in hell, there will be degrees of punishment. Jesus taught that. There will be degrees of punishment in hell, but remember that the final reward of those who do evil is that hell is cast alive into the lake of fire. And everyone who is judged and found not written in the book will be cast alive. And they're not annihilated. They don't get a do-over. 
Even though many churches today are teaching that after at the end, God is such a God of love that he will not allow anybody to be tormented for all eternity. He'll give them a chance to get out if they want to. How many of you really believe if hell is everything the Bible says, that Jesus, if they gave them a chance to get out, they would go, no, nah, I think I'll stay here. <laughs> Jesus was very clear. First comes death and then comes the judgment. There's no do-over. No mulligans for every golfer who knows what that is. <laughs> Anybody else? Yes, sir. So when Jesus comes back, um, after the judgment, when we all um, go into the sky to be judged, is it so, is it going to be like, Heaven and you're like, there's gonna be no sadness, or is it like gonna be re like regular life? No, it this is all taking place in heaven. This is in heaven. You talking about when Jesus comes back and comes down to the earth? Okay, it will be at the end of this horrendous period of time. There. There will be the judgment of the sheep and the goat nations, which is a separate teaching altogether. But those who survive the tribulation period will go alive into this thousand year period of time. And the devil and all of his demons will be bound forever for a thousand years in the bottomless pit. So it won't be like it is now in that we right now we have demons and we have demonic oppression and we have Satan himself, right? Take that out of the equation. Take the fact that three-fourths of the world will have been judged during the tribulation and that they will have died. Three-fourths of the earth's population will die during the tribulation period. So the world's definitely going to be different, but there'll be no satanic oppression or anything else. But God, Jesus is going to come down and sit on the throne and there'll be two different forms of government. There'll be one form of government for Gentile nations. There'll be another form of government for Jewish nations during that thousand year period of time. They will continue to work. They'll continue to have children. They'll continue to, to have life as we understand it. But we who are resurrected or translated will have glorified bodies and we will rule and reign. I talked about that last week. Reigning is position and ruling is passing or executing of judgments. And so because there'll still be people on the earth and people will still be being born during this time, we still have what's what? An Adamic nature, a sinful nature, right? Now the devil will be bound, demons will be bound, all evil as we know it in that realm will be bound, but there'll still be the heart of man. And there will be things that will take place and that's why there will be government on the earth and why we, the Bible says we, and the tribulation saints will be resurrected and we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. And so there, there's, there's going to be some differences, but it's still going to be the earth as we know it without the spiritual darkness that's over it. And Christ will be in flesh on the throne in Jerusalem. So there's going to be some changes, but there's still going to be some regular things going on too. Good question.
That's good. Um, what I was wondering is like uh, your aborted children, is that going to come to pass in that thousand-year deal to where they can grow up and make their own choices? Or that's not biblical? I'm just, there's, there's nothing in the Bible about that. Okay. okay. The Bible says that when we die, our soul and spirit go into the presence of God. Okay? If we are evil and we die, we don't go into the presence of God, we go to hell and wait to be judged into the presence of God. A child that is alive and aborted has done no evil, so I believe the soul and the body of that child is in heaven. And there's nothing that says they must grow up. That's again, that's why I say, when you get to heaven, people go, well, how old will I be? Or what will I look like? I do not know. There's nothing that says that. But the soul and spirit does not need to grow up. Yeah, there's nothing in there that talks about that. We have to look at exactly what the scripture talks about. And it's, we're talking about soul and spirit going to heaven when we die. Whether we're 85 years old or five months. Okay, so in millennial reign, right? Yes. Satan, all the demons and everything, they're going to be trapped in the bottomless pit. So there won't be any temptation on the earth, but you said that people, because of the ad the edemic nature in their hearts, they're still like gonna do wrong? They can, yes, they, and, and the Bible says that there will be some, those that, w that will, yes. Interesting. And they'll be judged. Because that, that is the point of, have, of us having a relationship to be able to judge with God. So, yeah. Anybody else? We good? Thank you so much for coming out. I hope you got some stuff out of this. And uh, hope to see you next week. Amen.